Welcome to the Learning Development Project podcast. The goal of this show is to foster conversations around learning development as a field of academic practice. To this end, we talk to people who have published in this area and contributed to making LD what it is. Every episode is filled with ideas that inform our practice and make our work with learners meaningful. We are your hosts, Karina Buckley and Alicia Siska. And today we're so delighted to welcome Sylvia Whitchurch, who is Honorary Associate Professor in the Institute of Education at UCL. Her research interests lie in academic and professional roles in higher education, including changing career and workforce patterns and the impact of those changes on academic and professional identities. Celia arguably transformed the way learning developers think about themselves and their work when she published a paper that will begin our discussion today, Shifting Identities and Blurring Boundaries, the Emergence of Third Space Professionals in UK Higher Education. And this was published in Higher Education Quarterly in 2008. She has since published extensively in this area and uh, it probably would um, not be far from uh, being correct by saying that uh, Celia is the queen of third space in uh, learning development. So thank you so much, Celia, for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Before we start, is there anything else you'd like to share about yourself or things that uh, have shaped your thinking and writing that you'd like our listeners to know? Well, I, I think uh, the fact that I moved from a professional role originally first, first 30 years of my career into an academic role, which is quite unusual, certainly at the time, um, made me think much more about the way in which people move in their careers. And I became very interested subsequently on in people's careers generally, both academics and professional staff. So I think my 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 latter career, the last 13 years as an academic, was very much informed by my earlier career. I didn't forget all about being a professional member of staff. So I think that was quite helpful. And I've since um, done a large project for, uh, funded by the ESRC for the um, um, centre, big centre at Oxford, it used to be at UCL, moved to Oxford on academic careers. So my thinking kind of moved on <clears throat> into the academic sphere. But there are a lot of um, academics or people on academic contracts who are undertaking work that is very project oriented and not necessarily um, totally disciplinary or pure disciplinary, put it that way. So I think there's a lot of fluidity going on in um, the way people enact their careers in higher education generally. I can tell you about these things as I answer your questions. That's great. Yeah, we'll definitely come back to it. But I, I am really itching to say something about how <laughs> I came to uh, the third space, because I think my trajectory is the opposite actually okay. it came from the academic world yeah. into the professional world but also kind of kept both because I'm a hybrid academic so I actually do both but it was quite interesting because my background is in cultural studies and mm -hmm. uh, more specifically American uh, cultural studies mm -hmm. and so I was very familiar with the third space the concept of third space you know uh, uh -huh. coming from Omi Baba and I actually used it in my own PhD because I was conceptualizing Eastern Europe as the third space between this in this kind of bipolar world between the East and the, and the West and and 
seven years later, because I, I defended my PhD in 2008, and seven, when, when the paper was published, actually, uh, and uh, seven years later, I came to LD uh, to learn development, and everyone's talking about third space. And <laughs> it was a little bit confusing at first to me, but also really, um, you know, uh, there was a sense of synchronicity of coming uh, together of these ideas um, from cultural studies and from the professional world. And I was fascinated by how, you know, you, you conceptualize that space in between these this bipolar world of academics and and professionals so how did i i mean the first question that i understand it was how did i get to get to the first paper i wrote in 2008 um which you've mentioned and as i said that came from my own experience but more particularly like you i undertook a phd which was awarded in 2008 so it all stemmed from there uh, but what what was very apparent uh, in this first i interviewed 24 um, professional members of staff in the UK, that was the first step. And what became very obvious was that there was a group of people who were extremely protective about um, the boundaries of their job description and the roles and responsibilities they felt that they had to enact and that they'd been given by the university. And they became very upset if other people tried to tread on their territory, as it were. And people were, um, these sorts of people were, for example, um, in registry or department administrator roles. And the example I always give is that, in fact, I experienced it myself as a, as a faculty manager, was one day um, this group of people in a large civic university decided it'd be a very good idea if they all met together and swapped ideas about how they did their jobs. This, I mean, this is about 20 years ago, and I, I think it's different now, but um, they used to meet in the pub off-site and, um, you know, have lunch every month or something. They found it very productive. Anyway, the registrar found out and uh, was not at all happy about them having a meeting without the registrar being there. <laughs> and, you know, so it almost became a secret society. And, and all they were were just people doing the same jobs in different faculties or departments. So I, I think that's a very good illustration of how university administration used to be. I mean, bearing in mind that I joined in the 70s, so it was a very long time ago, and I joined um, into, into a, it was a small university, but it was very like that. You, you didn't really talk to people outside your particular field of, um, of work, and so, um, you know, you only spoke to the person above you in the hierarchy and below you in the hierarchy, and it's incredibly rigid. Anyway, but it also became apparent that there there were two other groups. One, one group, I mean, I call them the Young Turks, so very um, good about crossing boundaries. They were the sort of people that would organise these meetings um, across uh, departments and faculties. And they were sort of movers and shakers. Uh, so I call them cross-boundary professionals. And then there was another much smaller group who were completely sort of unaware of boundaries, took no notice whatsoever their job descriptions. But I had a specific project that they were very interested in. I mean, the, it was the early days of sort of e-learning and digital work, um, people in those kinds of areas. But also um, in some people in um, uh, community partnership, um, those kinds of areas which were sort of just developing um, and, and hadn't really been written into the script. So they, they were often left, left to themselves. They might have a nominal... Um, uh, line manager, but but in fact they they were able to um, plan their own agendas really. 
So um, these, I eventually call them unbounded professionals. Um, and because my supervisor, Ron Barnett, was very keen on uh, his students trying to express themselves in diagrams, he kept saying, you have to get your PhD on one page in a diagram. So I, I mean, I would tell my students this because I actually found it quite helpful when I got into it. And I drew um, the diagram that's in the paper. Um, eventually, that was after I'd gotten, I'll, I'll go back and tell you how I got the, the Leadership Foundation grant, which led to the third space diagram. But anyway, I, I, I did a diagram of these bounded, um, cross-boundary and unbounded professionals. And so I had, um, I had the three columns along the top and then down the side I had spaces, knowledges, relationships and legitimacies, which I'm sure you're familiar with, um, or legitimacies was really about recognition. Anyway, I filled in all those, those 12, um, 12 cells and that was my PhD. I felt I got on one page, uh, but it, you know, it took four or five years to get to that point. But the same stage of the study was, um, uh, I mean, I was very lucky. I happened to, somebody knew about my, my work and recommended to the Leadership Foundation that they invited me to apply for a, a research grant, which at the time they were, they were offering up to a dozen research grants. They've now been wound up into advanced HEs, I'm sure you know. Anyway, um, I did apply for it and was very lucky I got it, which enabled me to retire from a day job, which I was Secretary of a Medical School at the time. Um, and um, for two years I worked on this research grant and it's enabled me to go to the States and also to Australia and see what's happening there. And that was very good because that gave me a basis for comparison. And so I developed the work from my doctorate. Um, and initially, and I, at that point, I decided to focus on these people who were unbounded. I then called them blended, <laughs> but they're in people in, in areas such as you're working in. Um, and also research management. I mean, that, uh, that's the other big area like um, educational development that certainly initially seemed to have lots of um, third space professionals in them. Um, so then I developed the diagram that's in, in the um, uh, paper and that seemed, to, that seemed to resonate with a lot of people. And uh, as, as you've been saying, I. I mean, I thought of the idea of third space <clears throat> on the train. I remember the moment I thought of it. I think it was during the Blair um, Clinton years and they were talking about um, the third way, weren't they? Anyway, I then thought, well, I'd better look and see if, if third space is a, you know, a theoretical concept that, that's been used before. Because then I found all the stuff in the cultural studies literature. I was a bit disappointed that I hadn't invented it. But my original contribution, as you said, was applying it to these kinds of roles, which um, has actually turned out to be quite powerful, amazingly enough. Mm. Um, and certainly, I mean, I have to say, I, when I first talked about this, particularly in Europe at conferences, I suppose around 2010 or so, went down like a lead balloon. I mean, really, really nobody understood it. Mm. And pe some people, some talks I gave, individuals became quite angry and upset about it because they, they felt that, you know, it was taking away their job if they didn't have a proper boundary, a mm -hmm. proper job description. I mean, there were quite a lot of these people, you know, used to go to these talks and feel um, quite battered at the end. But then gradually, you know, the 
you know, I got quite a lot of recognition uh, for the idea and, uh, you know, then it became quite exciting. And of course, since then, um, just more and more uh, fields of activity seem to fall into the space. And, and in fact, a number of academics have said to me, you know, I've given, before lockdown, I did give quite a lot of talks in various places. And a lot of people said to me, well, we're all third space now because, you know, we're all doing everything, which, you know, in one sense is true. Um, so I think, you know, in the last 10 or 15 years, um, the idea has moved on. Um, and, yeah. uh, so about, and about that, mm -hmm. about yeah. that may, may I just ask about, about that? Because yeah. the idea has moved on, um, mm. but it was really prescient yeah, from the start because in, we are we live in this world of permeability and it's not mm -hmm. just between higher education and outside world but also within higher education yeah, yeah? there is mobility there, there are all these portfolio careers or squiggly careers uh, uh, and there's all this flexibility so so you talked to something very culturally contextual and very critical as a kind of space and way ways of working and thinking but at the same time in terms of where the concept is going because once it kind of means everything I know isn't it isn't it kind of losing a little bit of that specificity in terms of what you were trying to achieve with it oh well now I can um, I can give a puff for my latest three papers which haven't been published yet but two have been accepted and the first one look, just looks at this idea that it's now all things to all people. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I looked at in the, the project I did for the Global Centre for Higher Education in Oxford, uh, which was initially looking at academic careers, but then I, I've looked further to see, um, you know, people who work in third space environments. And it seemed to me that there were two groups, um, one of which I have called third space professionals. Um, who thrive in third space, but more importantly, they're recognised by their institution. I mean, they may not call it third space, but they have recognised offices like learning development or academic advice or, or whatever it is, these kinds of areas, uh, research and enterprise. And there's another group that I've called working in third space, who are very involved in, in the work, the projects they're doing, they're very committed ideologically, but they're not, there's two groups of those people. One, one group are very frustrated because they can't get recognition for the purposes of promotion or, or anything else uh, in their universities, but they keep trying. And some of them, in fact, eventually do get recognized, but they're, they're sort of working against the, the organization in a way to try to, to get recognition. And there's another group who don't really care about what the institution thinks because they probably, they, have very good contacts and networks outside. They're often in fields like health, media, humanitarian work, um, forensics. Um, these are all example, actual examples, but they work in the community, but then they work part-time in universities teaching students who are going to go into those kinds of uh, fields of work. Uh, but they often have, have come from outside and they, haven't, they don't see themselves necessarily as having a career in higher education. So, um anyway they're kind of um as i say they're in a different sort of group from people who are mainstream third space professionals mm -hmm. and the other paper i've written is all about um 
mode three knowledge. Have you heard of mode three? It, it's using knowledge that you um, glean and share with local communities and users. Mm. Mode one is pure disciplinary knowledge. Mode two is applied disciplinary knowledge. And mode three is, is much more the kind of knowledge that these kinds of people that I've just been talking about bring to the university uh, because you know they work in practice um, much of the time or you know some of the time or much of the time and have a lot of contacts outside so um, I'm quite interested in the way that third space professionals use the knowledge that they create um, that's different from other types of knowledge in the university um, yeah so anyway that those are the three areas I'm working with at the moment as I say one, one will be published this summer in the American Journal I can I can send you the details. One's a chapter in a book being published in Australia, and the third one is uh, for the Journal of Higher Education Policy and Management. But that's got to be refereed yet. So, but yeah. So I'm moving. I'm moving on my thinking about third space because it is it is true that it it has become all things to all people. And the other um, the other point that I always make, and some of the books that have recently been published talk about the third space and I don't think this is a single third space I think it's many different sorts of spaces as you say it's space that crosses boundaries it's space within boundaries um, it's new space it's space outside the university yeah. so there are all kinds of third spaces so I, I think one can't be too definitive which makes it very difficult uh, to write about it really and to speak about it because people grab it and say oh that's what I am and um, yeah, how can yes. I persuade my my line manager that I'm different and so <laughs> it feels almost like it it was formed out of an opposition in a way that you're not that thing and you're not that thing so you must yeah. be this thing rather yeah. than I am this thing yeah if it's not in its own right maybe that has moved on now as well but that's a bit I think yeah I mean I always say to people I mean I did this talk last week and some people were taking it extremely literally and I don't think you can take it too literally. I mean, it's just a theoretical concept mm. um, rather than a, well, it's theoretical and real, but, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't think it's something you can put in a job description necessarily, mm. but it's something that if you're aware of and if line managers are increasingly aware of, they can adapt job descriptions and um, promotions policies and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, to maintain awareness of, of people that don't fit into, um, you know, people you always used to get squeezed into, you know, particular roles and particular organisational spaces, and that just doesn't really work anymore. Mm. Yeah, and we're talking both about kind of the, uh, metaphoric spaces, right? But also there's a spatial aspect to third space as well right um, yeah. I wonder if you could say something more about that because I'm really fascinated about that you mean sort of whether people have their own offices or not so it's um because some people as you say are in particular roles where they kind of join different functions and oh, uh, activities mm -hmm. people yes I mean I've found lots of these people you know, were very good at developing their own space. They were floating, but then they kind of um, almost gathered other people around them because it was an exciting space to be in. Mm -hmm. um, so that 
I mean, that's the positive aspect of it. And then other people might split off um, and then create their own third space, making contacts with other, other fields of endeavor. Um, yeah, but it's a bit like an amoeba really. Um, it, you know, it changes shape and then can sort of split off and become another amoeba. Mm. But, you know, I think you can only, it's very difficult to talk about it in the abstract. It's only sort of by relating it to individuals um, that you can, that it's really helpful, I think. I mean, sometimes I think it might be unhelpful because people can then feel if, they, if they're not able to do this, you know, they're not really succeeding. So I think it's quite important, um, you know, to offer it as a way of thinking about people's roles and for their line managers to think about their roles because that's very important the recognition aspect is really very important I think to to the individual but ultimately to to the institution because getting the most of it out of your staff is you know, what, what they want to do mm. and I find that it is resonating more with academic staff now who um, quite a lot of people interviewed might being mid-career you know I always think you know 50s is a, a difficult time because if you stop publishing or you can't get research grants some of these people are moving into areas like student success developing widening participation programs all kinds of you know e-learning digital world and that that became their main interest and main function but it wasn't actually it's not actually discipline they might do a bit of disciplinary teaching as well but you know, some people got quite fired up by these specific, well, they're doing something new and actually, I mean, they even met somebody who was running meditation courses for their students. They got no recognition whatsoever, but they found it very productive and it's part of, um, uh, it's part of, I don't know, almost like the student um, experience um, developed to the nth degree <laughs> mm. people can meditate. So, but all, and then the sort of titles people have are so different these days. You don't quite often don't know what people say. I don't know what student success. I mean, I met two people who said they were student success um, directors of student success. I, I didn't really know what that meant. I assume it means helping people to, to pass their exams and not to be intimidated and how how to learn. I mean, it's, mm. I suppose it's education development. I suppose it comes into that. But. You know, there are a lot of different titles now. Nothing yeah. like the sort of titles I was used to. And, and I did find uh, some people got very frustrated that their titles didn't really reflect what they did. So I suppose that's quite good. People are now having titles they feel comfortable with. Mm. That's another issue, you know, what are you called? The, I mean, the other thing I've been asked by, even by vice chancellors, is how they can create third space environments where they don't exist. And my answer to that is you have to appoint somebody um, who you know is third space and understands mm. and, and can develop an area and you can't just create it by sitting down and um, developing an organization chart and you have to have somebody who's creative and who's going to um, really inspire other people to work in that way it feels very much from what you've been saying that to be in the third space is to be almost like a hub for connections yeah. all over the institution well not necessarily all over but much broader mm. than your own immediate mm. 
team or your immediate mm -hmm. contacts, but to be to be linking up and joining joining things together. Yes, yeah, I think so. But mm -hmm. I mean, some people were more. Um, they were quite keen on keeping their bit of third space themselves. <laughs> you know, they were, I mean, you still got this business of people to be in charge. Um, so, you know, as I say, people are more mobile these days and might move in and out of it, you know, for their own purposes and to gain particular sort of experience. But yes, I mean, generally speaking, I would say that there were people who were interested in relating to other people and professional networks and the other th the other thing to say is um well like you have this professional network which we'll talk about later but um some third space professionals were more networked than others in terms of formal networks and the other big network is the research managers as i said before and then there are many networks within the networks of i don't know um, I keep talking about academic advisors and people like that, but some um, student success groups, perhaps they have their own network, I don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes people belong to more than one network. So I, I think um, it's the sort of op the openness of it that I think is attractive to people. And also, uh, particularly for academics or people in academic contracts, the fact that they can, you know, perhaps if their work in their discipline is not flourished or stopped flourishing, um, that they can find something else, some other project that they can become identified with and really uh, involve themselves in and find satisfaction with. Mm. Um, and I found people do, I mean, I'll give the example of this person that's running meditation classes, but I mean, that's just a sort of mini example. There are lots of people doing things that um, almost on the side that kept them going intellectually in a way or you know emotionally in whatever way um because you know what whatever they were doing they've been doing it for a long time and perhaps it was becoming very stressful etc etc mm. so considering the growth of third space mm. would you consider it a kind of safe space or a risky space no. and, and especially <laughs> when i'm thinking about you know academics moving into third space yeah. are they kind of failed academics yeah, yeah. Um, what are the opportunities and threats of that yeah. third space to you I mean that um it's a very good question it's just one that I actually always address on my third space talk as it were um yeah I mean some people did find it what it is can be risky and the kind of people that thrived in it were people that could cope with that I did find that particularly in my initial um interviews with the professional staff um that was very obvious um but there were people that were quite dynamic they had confidence they perhaps worked in other fields before um so they came with um knowledge and um relationships that they brought into the university so that was seen as a, a kind of plus um but yes the other side of the coin is that they were sometimes you know, felt they were cut out of meetings. Um, and they, uh, one, I remember one person said, I had to barge my way into meetings and, um, you know, make my own way and make myself known because nobody was there to introduce me, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so they, they were the kind of people that could do that, particularly in the early days, mm -hmm. um, you know, when the, all these fields were developing, uh, you know, I'm talking 15 years ago. 
um, found that very much. But I think younger people particularly are much more comfortable with being more free-flowing and um, free-floating. I mean, one of the, I wrote a, a book about four or five years ago with George Gordon, and one of the things we looked at, it was, it was um, called um, Reconstructing Relationships in Higher Education. And it was really about um, the importance of middle managers. And by that, I mean, you know, just your line manager or head of department, and they can make or break careers. And that's mm -hmm. why I think it's so important that they should understand um, third space, you know, the trials and tribulations as well as the positive, so that they can, you know, encourage the staff. Mentorships become increasingly important. People didn't have mentors in my day, but they do now. You know, it's just risky, but, you know, if you can get your line manager and your mentor behind you, um, you know, that's the way to tackle it. I think. Mm -hmm. Safety numbers in a way, you know. Mm. There's a sort of groundswell of, of work going on that you know can't be ignored really. Mm. I found it really fascinating in your article where you compare um, how third space professionals feel in the UK versus the US yeah. and Australia and how in the US in particular they feel really integrated, respected for what they bring in, but they didn't feel the same in the UK. Yeah. Um, that was that was the case, and that, but remember that was fifteen years ago. Mm -hmm. But it was partly because in the states, many more of these people had doctorates, um, and they did in Australia as well. But Australia was sort of somewhere between the states and the UK. I mean, I you know I'd have to do the same project again to say, um, you know, if that's changed. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I would say that from my observation and just anecdotally, well, many more people are, are doing part-time PhDs now anyway. Um, and I, I think things have moved and I think, I think things have loosened up actually, but not, not in every institution and not in every department, obviously. Um, but, you know, I, I'd have to do, you'd have to do another, I won't do it, but somebody would have to do another project um, to find out, you know, the differences. But it, I think the confidence factor came from one or two people so I've got a PhD or the day I got my PhD my academic colleagues looked at me differently and I felt I could enter into academic arguments much with much more confidence than before so that's the that's the basis of it really um, and I think I mean my impression is because I'm, I'm not close with at all now that the sort of register jobs that I was doing and others were doing 20 years ago they're all they're all done, you know, digitally now. So that's those kinds of desk roles, as I call them, um, are much more in an advisory capacity, and people have to be much more outgoing um, than people that just sat behind their back. They used to be called backroom jobs, and it's um, not an expression I like at all. But you know what I mean? <laughs> Very bureaucratic, etc. So, I mean, the whole world's changed, really. But I, I think. Um, I think third space is still very relevant. Um, and uh, yeah, I hope you'll read my more recent work going into it in more detail um, about you know, precisely what it might mean for people and how, how people can make most of it, really. It's a key idea in learning development, so I'm sure uh, well, everyone good. will be glued to. <laughs> I mean, I really like the expression. I mean, I can't remember who said it. It came from ethnography. You probably know about making the invisible visible. 
and the fami familiar strange and the strange familiar and the familiar strange and etc and I think that's what it does really it makes people sort of examine what they're doing as I say the, the couple of recent books last year which you probably know about one was some um, Macintosh and Nutt, the integrated practitioners. I'm sure you've read that. And then Natalia Velez in Australia has written a book mainly about research um, administrators and mm. um, enterprise people. But um, they're both, yeah, I mean, and they, they've sort of moved it on. I don't agree with Natalia because she talks about deep earth space. I've told her about that. Uh -huh. <laughs> so you better take that bit out of the recording. <laughs> But you know, it's just if it makes people discuss and argue, I think that's you know, good, isn't it? Absolutely. I think it's become a a, a really central part of learning developer identity. Yeah, well, that's great. Um, which is really curious because identity is such a so it's a social concept. So I think we've reached that kind of critical mass now where people can recognise each other. Um, and you feel recognised for what you do and who you are and how you work and where in the university mm. you work. Um, but it has, in a way, I think it's helped to create the identity of oh, learning. Because um, we oh. have all sorts of job titles and things like that. There's no fixed role. There's no fixed structure or anything like that. But I think really? mm -hmm. saying, oh, yes, yes, this is a third space role has mm -hmm. really helped understand what that, oh, what that role is. Yeah. Well, it's really good for me to hear from people like you because, as I say, I'm not saying I've lost touch, but you know, I'm not with it every day now. So mm. it's good to know that uh, that things are moving on and that people are still researching mm. the field. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, how how do you think the field could move on, particularly in relation to something like learning development? How could this the whole concept of third space be further developed? for a particular area of practice? I mean, I think learning development's a huge umbrella, I would say that. So I think it, I think, you know, you might need to break it down into separate areas of learning development. I mean, I, I'm not sure that I know exactly what, what it covers, mm. um, but it seems to me the two, two key aspects of it is sort of developing the skills of students and developing the skills of teachers. I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, more directly more to the students. students. Mm -hmm. More to the students, okay. But um, as you as you said about the third the third space, third space, <laughs> uh, it's a kind of blurry concept, and the same goes for learning development. It's quite blurry because there are so many different job titles absolutely. that come under this umbrella. That yeah. and, and learning developers themselves cannot quite agree on one definition of what learning development right. is. Okay. And we're still yeah. having these conversations and producing research that is trying to kind of uh, um, mark maybe some, some boundaries, but without constraining mm -hmm. the field too much. Okay, well, can you give me some examples of job titles out of interest? Yeah. Well, learning advisor. Right, uh, okay. Learning skills tutor. I had that one. Um, mm. Study skills okay. tutor. Yeah. Um, sometimes academic, academic. Yeah. What about counselling? Does that come into it? No, yeah. that, I think that would, be, that would be separate, yeah. Yeah, okay. Mm. Learning designer as well. Right, okay. I've heard mm. that one. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, developing into independent learning um, and providing students with a toolkit for lifelong learning, really, 
and also mm. employability, I would say. Mm. Um, uh, and well, of course, the elephant in the room now is sort of digital information and use of, misuse of it, including chat GPT, which I have no experience whatsoever. But from what I read, that seems to be, you know, huge um, topic mm-hmm. and whether you should just deal with it um, you know it's a positive and a negative um, with students or whether I mean some people say you should tell students sort of not to not to use it um, other people say well you should educate them about you know the misuses and how it might be useful and what what might be useful uh, in the digital world and what might not and I mean what what's legal and what's not legal as well but I think only eight institutions in the UK actually banned the use of ChatGPT, and these are right. all Russell Group institutions. But really? all the other institutions decided to work with students and uh, yeah, and, yeah help them to navigate that new world because it's such a turning point. Sure. That it's, yeah, yeah. Thank you. No, that's um, well. I'm glad I don't have to. <laughs> I mean, how can you tell those students have used it? That's the problem, isn't it? Yeah, it's like an arms race. So um... yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and also for staff, I mean, supporting them in this and their updating. I mean, I think that's really important because the average member of staff, you know, is going to read about it in the Times Higher, but you know, knowing what to do about it. I mean, I'm sure people there are meetings going on, etc. But uh, there has to be some kind of uh, understanding, I think. And the, I mean, the other point I would make about learning developers development is the importance of integrating it into the curriculum because certainly I find um, with quite a lot of my students who say have difficulty with writing you know I could refer them to the writing centre but you know quite often they didn't have time to go or that was something else they had to do etc etc and so in fact I and a colleague used to give sessions on academic writing within the programme I was working on an MBA programme at the time um, but um, certainly with PhD students, I mean, you can't spend all your time, especially mm. if they need a lot of help <clears throat> talking about academic writing, especially if they're from overseas. And so I think that is quite a big issue because yeah. um, you can't really get a degree of any sort without being able to write. Um, maybe that will change, but at the moment, um, I mean, one of your questions was how do we communicate the value of the field to others? And it seems to me that, you know, being... Um, very practical about it, you know, by focusing on areas that are sort of politically important by, for, for example, by linking academic practice and learning development with employability and outreach and widening mm. participation, student experience, all those kinds of areas that are very important to the government um, mm. and to universities. Um, just seems um, quite obvious to me that yeah. it is a very important field, but it, you know, the problem is if you integrate it into the con- um, curriculum it becomes subsumed and therefore you don't have the kind of separate it's not a separate thing mm. that you can identify with so it, I suppose it has to be a, a combination of both really and how do you relate to say advanced HE I mean do you have a link there is that a, a profile you can link in with um, in the sense that um that many learning developers will go for fellowship things yeah. like that um, so yeah. Uh, the work that we do is um, is is recognised by Advanced HE mm-hmm. in the fellowship mm-hmm. scheme, so I think that is a popular form of recognition. Um, 
for learning developers because it's that it's that kind of academic credential mm -hmm. isn't it again it's about saying yes I, I do work with students and I do understand academic work I might not have a PhD but I am a senior fellow for example mm -hmm. yes um, yeah. so I think I think that's a really important um, path that a lot of learning developers do go down um, for that external recognition sure yeah uh, and a part of the part of the whole um purpose of the podcast you, mm. you mentioned about writing and it is very mm. much about encouraging people to put themselves mm -hmm. out out in the in the public eye as it were um yeah. through publication um not um encouraging anybody to do anything else just publication it's all right um but um writing writing can be so difficult for people even for people who who teach other people how to write um you've clearly uh, written a lot was this you moved into an academic mm -hmm. uh, career um but how how new was writing mm -hmm. to you or is it something that you were you'd always been familiar with yeah I mean I don't have a problem with writing it's one thing I do it's my mate it's what I've done all my life I mean I did a degree in English so right from school right however um, and but when I became an administrator, I had, wrote policy papers. I mean, I had to, there's a style, and I had to learn that. To I me, mean, I didn't find that easy to start with. And then when I did my doctorate, I did actually go to a couple of writing, how to write a thesis sort of courses, um, which were very helpful because writing a thesis is totally different from writing anything else, as I'm sure you know. But academic writing, I suppose, I I looked at what other people did, and um, yeah, I just sort of that by doing really and then obviously you get critical comment, comments from referees so you know you just gradually learn that as you go on but there are there are some very good texts about writing and I read those as well before I started my PhD Rowena Murray is the person mm -hmm. she's written a lot of stuff and she writes in a very accessible way there's somebody called Vernon Trafford who used to be at Anglia I think he's retired now um, but he writes about how to pass your viva by focusing on the questions they're going to ask you in your thesis, sort of working backwards. I mean, that's quite interesting. Now, look at that. Mm -hmm. And this book by Diana Leonard, who sadly is no longer with us, called The Woman's Guide to Doctoral Study. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> so it's quite old now, probably about 20 years old. But, uh, you know, there's plenty. And all the or Rowena Murray's books have been, I mean, that's the, one, the main one. They've all been reprinted. That's how she's made her living the last 20, 20 or 30 years, about writing books on how to write. Um, so, yeah, but then when I, I mean, I'm writing a paper now that, you know, I've been writing it for about three weeks. And the important thing is, I think, to, and I've been on creative writing courses as well. And they all say, you know, try and write every day, mm -hmm. write what you can and when you can. But take a break don't you know I mean my maximum is two hours I can't really partly because my eyesight's not brilliant these days but I can't sit at the screen for more than two hours you know I used to tell my students to you know go for a bike ride or go to the gym or whatever I mean I, I go in the garden because I'm a gardener but you know, trying to break it down into small steps just write a paragraph mm -hmm. I know of my thesis I sometimes you know just write a paragraph in the day and, I did mm -hmm. try and write every day, but um, my, again, my supervisor used to say, 
a page a day as a thesis in a year and I thought that that was really good <laughs> that that was quite encouraging actually it feels yeah. so achievable doesn't it yeah yeah put it like that <laughs> Yeah, when I was writing my thesis, I was reading the book, Write Your Thesis in 15 Minutes a Day. Oh, oh really? Oh, <laughs> and I've that was seen encouraging that one. too. Yeah. Who wrote that? Uh, Bolker. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that sounds a very good one. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's... <laughs> um, so I think it's, you know, it's like anything, um, sort of the more, more the try, you try, the harder it can become. But the, I mean, the other thing they always tell you is to keep a log of ideas when they occur. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have to say, my ideas occur, you know, in most unlikely places. And uh, let's say the third space thing, I remember it, I was on a train and looking out of the window and it just came to me. But that was because I was immersed in, in what mm-hmm. I was doing. And so I think when you think you're switching off, or, you know, I'm in the garden or, you know, you've gone for a run or whatever people do to relax, you know, things, things go around in your mind and... Uh, things occur not from when you're just about to go to sleep as well I find so yes um, that's a magical time isn't it where yeah, everything yeah. becomes clear and <laughs> you, you discover the key to the universe yeah. and you think that it's so obvious you're going to remember it but if you don't write no, it down it's no, going to be gone you never remember it in the morning I know it's incredible <laughs> um but, you know although I'm used to writing I mean a couple of years ago um I had a paper rejected well me and two others and that was quite sobering really because I hadn't had projected before but we were being pressurized to publish out of this research project and it was a bit premature and in the end we withdrew it and we did some more of the research and it did get published well a different sort of paper got published in 2021 so one has one's failures you know I think you have to be and I was quite pleased because a colleague of mine who's a professor then had their paper rejected so um I sort of felt a lot better about it mm. there's it's... nothing better than a little bit of schadenfreunde <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah. but uh, I think well thank you so much for sharing it because lots of people when they get rejected they feel there's something wrong with them they take it very personally but as uh, like Paul Silviat says you know it's a tax on publishing like you just have yeah. to you have to be rejected in order to be um accepted and if Celia Whitchurch can be rejected, anyone can. <laughs> so, <laughs> to our listeners, yes, I think that's an important message. <laughs> it's interesting. Well, I, isn't it? so. I mean, the more you talk to colleagues, everybody's had rejections yeah. from journals. No. Yeah. Uh, and it was a top journal, you know, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's then, something that people just don't talk about, but if yeah. we do talk about it, then. Yeah we would know that it's actually much more common than yeah. than you think. To normalise it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. not a sign of personal failure. It's just yeah. they didn't want the paper, that's all. <laughs> well, some, some journal, this particular journal, you know, was oversubscribed 10 times, you know, what they could put, at least 10 times, you know. Well, I'm yeah. sure they're uh, regretting it now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I think writing is something you can learn, actually. I do. Mm-hmm. Um, it just has so to take you, a bit of time to do it, yeah. Would you say it's more of a craft than an art, then? Oh, I would say it's both. Definitely both. But, that, you know, that, that's what I've always done. And I had a very good English teacher when I was at school. And, but then, obviously, I had my aptitude was in that direction. 
my degree was in English and you know, my life's been about books, so, but you know, I'm not good at other things. So, you know, but I thought, thank goodness I could do that. Mm. Yeah, it's, I find it, yeah, an art and a craft really. And I go back and uh, revise things masses of times, you know, I mean, I, I would have a stack about 20 versions and I have to print everything off. I can't really do everything mm. on the screen. I have to print things off in large type or larger mm -hmm. type. And then I've got a pile on the floor of previous versions. Um, and just in case they get wiped off the PC. <laughs> can, you, um, can you foresee a time when you won't write anymore? Or do you think writing is who you are and you will always write? Well, I can because uh, I can foresee a time, unfortunately, because I won't have any more data. <laughs> That's the problem with academic writing. I might go into creative writing then. Mm. Um, but I'm always being asked to constantly since I retired, which was about 18 months ago, or formally retired, constantly being asked to write prefaces to books and mm. things, various things. So it hasn't stopped yet. But I'm yeah. finding it harder. I mean, this latest paper I'm doing, I mean, I'm just squeezing out the last dregs of the data. <laughs> I don't think I can get any more out of this project, particularly on mm. third space. Um, and of course the data gets, I mean, we, we did the interviews between 2017 and 2019, so the data gets out of date. And the reason I kept saying, you know, about the paper you're talking about, which is 2008, yeah. um, you know, life moves on. I mean, I, people always quote that paper, but in fact, you know, it needs updating. Well, I have updated it now, but um, people always go back to that paper, which is fine. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the world has changed a lot. I think it's mm -hmm. changed more rapidly in the last 10 years than any previous 10 years, really. So I'm very Especially conscious. With the yeah. Mm -hmm. Especially with the pandemic, I suppose. It, it well, kind well, of became pandemic, this turning point. The, the digital world, which didn't really exist yeah. when I started teaching. And now, you know, unfortunately, I don't have to. <laughs> I don't have to worry about it now. But, you know, I have a colleague who was very into it and kept me posted but um it's a huge thing to I mean I'm not very digitally literate my generation weren't but you know I had to become as much as you know have to do as much as I need to do yeah can I just ask you one question about your writing process mm. what do you do with an empty page I just um well I have an idea and I write it down then I get a paragraph out of that idea and uh, I mean, I do have a bit of a template now for for academic papers. I didn't used to because I like things to be free flowing. But actually, part of the reason this paper was rejected, and I was really annoyed about it, because the person reviewing it um, had reviewed it like a scientific paper, and they wanted um, method analysis. Um, a discussion. It was very, very um, like it was a template, mm -hmm. and I thought, well, perhaps, perhaps my work is a bit free flowing. I just I write it and then I put the headings in, sort of thing. So I then, uh, influenced by Virginia Woolf, you know, I then mm -hmm. started doing that, and I seem to have had more success. I mean, it's not not quite as clear cut as that, but you know, I have an introduction, abstract introduction. Then the background to the study, yeah. Then how I analyze the data, then the results of the analysis. And it's difficult so when to bring the theory, but 
you know, I might say something about the theory earlier on, but then I theorize the data, say what, what that shows. Um, and then I, yeah, I mean, I do, do have that in mind, whatever I call the, the headings, I, I do that. And then, you know, you have to have a discussion and a conclusion. Mm. And I think if you do that, start with it, it helps you to cover all the bases, certainly mm -hmm. that a referee might look at. I have to say the quality of some referees. <laughs> yeah. Actually better cut this out, but um, I've edited, edited two journals as well. And I do feel the quality of referees has gone down because people haven't got time to do it. So quite often um, they're using people who are less experienced, I'll put it that way. And again, it didn't used to be the case 10 years ago, but I do feel it is now. So I do quite a lot of refereeing as well, mm -hmm. incidentally. Um, but I try to be helpful, you know, I try to be critical, but also helpful. Yeah. Um, constructive is the word, mm -hmm. I try to be constructive. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think it's quite stressful writing, uh, trying to publish papers. I'll be glad when this latest one's published, although it's a special issue and I submitted an abstract and the abstract was chosen. You know, there were a lot of abstracts and there were only eight chosen when it was chosen. Mm. Um, but then I write the paper and then that goes to two anonymous referees. So I'm, I'm not saying I'm nervous, but I'll when it's done, you know, I want to yeah. fall at the last hurdle because it probably will be my last paper certainly, on this mm. topic. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, the other thing is, you know, get a mentor for writing. You know, I know everybody's terribly busy, but Oh, the other thing I did um, when I was doing my PhD, you probably did too, a group of us used to get together in a sort of writing circle and swap mm -hmm. ideas. And sometimes, you know, people had different supervisors, so different supervisors would have different ways of explaining things and different ideas about how to do it. And that, I found that quite helpful, actually, um, because those supervisors obviously tell you precisely how to do it, but you gradually gather ideas from different sources. Yeah. Um, and I remember doing that. Um, because, I mean, I hadn't a clue, you know, I really hadn't a clue about how to do a PhD. I mean, totally, totally at sea. I mean, I think everybody is, perhaps unless you've gone straight from a master's or something. But mm -hmm. I was in my 50s, you know. So, and all that, I've been professional all those years. And, and, you know, and I've written masses of policy papers, you know. Which is very different, as you know. Mm -hmm. so, um, and for most people, it's the first time they're doing it. <laughs> Yeah, and also, and then of course, if you want to convert it to a book or even papers, um, you have to change the style. I mean, it's, yeah. you can't just publish a chapter. I mean, it's quite obvious. Quite some sometimes people just put in a chapter, and you can tell when you're refereeing them um, mm -hmm. that they're that's what they've done. Sometimes they don't even, you know, it's quite obvious the thesis because they say in this chapter or something. Yeah. Great giveaway. So. I am surprised that some of the, well, I'm surprised that some of the refereeing that goes on, but I'm surprised that some of the material that gets put in and mm -hmm. the editors then send to referees. Yes. Because as an editor, I, I you know, used to scrutinise stuff before it went out. Yeah, yeah. So, but I, I think, I, yeah, I do, more and more and more I think about it, try and, you know, find somebody to discuss your writing with on a one-to-one -one basis, even if it's just a colleague who's also having difficulty because, mm -hmm. I think between you, um, you perhaps you know iron out some ideas, and uh, that's yeah. really good advice. Yeah, yeah. I think peer um, review and mentoring are yeah, real gems. 
yeah, yeah and also um going to these you know writing classes as <laughs> classes mm -hmm. but you know every university has some kind of writing center don't they and um even i mean they they all run uh, not just writing pieces but i'm sure they all run um uh, sessions on how to write a paper for publication i mean i've seen them advertise yeah and we've yeah. we've had sessions in our research group for younger researchers yeah, yeah. um and, you know try and follow the advice i mean not slavishly but you know try to take cognizance of it it's sometimes frustrating for learning developers because they are yeah. the people who teach this stuff yeah. and oh, find okay. it really difficult to follow their own advice and mm -hmm. you know do what oh they i preach. see what you mean yeah yeah, yeah. well well, that's why I think talking to a they, colleague can help, can't it? Well, it can. And also, this little group we had when I was doing my PhD, we were all mature students and we were all academics, really. Um, we used to swap um, bits of writing and critique mm -hmm. each other's writing. And that was helpful, actually, even if you don't agree with what people say. It's another view. Yeah. And, you know, find somebody who's had a paper published mm -hmm. um, and, you know, talk to them about what referees said. You know how they responded. I mean, sometimes you don't agree with referees, but you know what do you do about that? Do you, um, you try? I I usually try and accommodate them as best I can because that's simpler than entering into an argument with the editor. But um, yeah. sometimes referees have got the wrong end of the stick; they just don't understand. And you know, quite often I've found um, people whose English is not the first language. I mean, it's not their fault, but sometimes. There are communication issues with their mm. written English. Mm. So, you know, it can be quite difficult. Mm. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think, yeah, I think writing circles are a very good idea, actually. I mean, they mm. do it, you know, for creative writing, don't they? But I certainly mm. think for, for academic writing as well, particularly for younger mm. But it does depend, I suppose, learning development, it's, you know, it's a sort of social science sort of thing, isn't it, really? But, um, I do think scientific writing is very different from the sort of writing that I did, but it has a sort of scientific element to it and that you have to cover. I mean, you have to, your data, even if it's soft data, qualitative data, which is what I usually have, I mean, it has to be rigorously analysed and rigorously connect, collected and all that kind of thing. Um, you have to make that clear. Um, so I, I find sometimes, I mean, I find writing practical things like how collecting the data not too difficult <clears throat> and you can almost have a template for that sometimes communicating ideas becomes very difficult and I have several drafts of, I mean paper right at the moment I've I've done a model a bit like a third space model but I had to explain it in great detail and then I thought this is far too complicated nobody's going to understand so I then simplified it again so it's getting the right level of sort of complication and simplicity mm -hmm. to any model that you develop it's a theoretical model that's developed yeah. you know, and trying to explain it that's i think that's the most difficult aspect of mm -hmm. writing papers finding that balance between providing enough context but not yeah. too much detail so people don't get lost uh, exactly exactly and especially have, with international audiences when you exactly. have yeah mixed and, and audiences of, are all international these days yeah um so i mean i the model I'm talking about was a qualitative model. I mean, it had, you know, cells explaining different types of third space people, basically. But I thought it got a bit abstract, so I had to bring it, bring it back. I mean, it's not published yet, but hopefully, 
if it will be. But I had to bring it back to something people could relate to, really. But, so I explained it sort of within the model, but then you're, you should also explain it in the text as well. Yeah. And I think that's a mistake people make. They slap, some, slap a model onto a page and don't explain it mm. and think that the reader can understand the model, which you can't yeah. always. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's an important aspect. Mm. And of course, the other thing people do is just, just describe what they've done. Don't sort of put it in any kind of... Um, well, they don't describe what the problematic is in the first place, why they're writing the paper and what the issues are. And then they just give you all the data. So so-and-so said this and so-and-so said that. And, and don't really say what the implications are. Yeah. So they don't, you know, because it's quite hard thinking it all through, isn't it? And, and finding a theoretical frame. I like doing that. And I find that quite interesting. Finding a frame and, yeah, I mean, that's how Third Space came up, really. But, uh, yeah, I mean, my, in, my, in my thesis, my theoretical framework was identity. <clears throat> that was really what I was working on. But then I moved on. I quite like structure and agency. I use that quite a lot. You now Anthony Giddens, all that stuff. It's quite mm -hmm. useful. <laughs> I use that as well. And Margaret Archer, yeah. heard of her. she talks about, well, it's basically about identity. I didn't understand it at all at first, but suddenly the penny dropped. And I find it very useful in talking about whether people are simply enacting their roles, i.e. just... Um, performing their roles as describing their job description or actually contributing themselves by their own agency to their roles. Mm, yeah. And she talks about all that sort of thing in quite a complex way, but it's very interesting the way she mm. dis discusses it. So that's quite useful for talking about roles and careers, which is mm. really what I've been doing. Anyway, I'll just give a plug for my our latest book, which is called, <laughs> which is it's about academic careers. The title, Challenging Approaches to Academic Career Making. It's published two weeks ago. Oh, oh amazing. Hot off the press. <laughs> Bloomsbury Publishing. I wrote oh. it with William Locke, who was leading the project and then left it to go to a chair in Australia, and Giulio Marini, who was the um, research assistant. So the three mm -hmm. of us, but I wrote most of it. <laughs> Right, thank you. We'll check it out for sure. So, there's more more in that, but more really on on academic careers. But I'm sure it's of relevance to. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we did interview people who are doing your sorts of jobs as well. Well, it'd be great to um, see the book and when your latest paper comes out to see how yeah. your thinking has moved on and kind of. I'll, I'll send them to you when they're brilliant. Uh, formally accepted. Yeah. That's oh, wonderful. and I have a. One of them I've adapted for, the, you know, um, the Third Space blog that Emily McIntosh and Dan Nutt have developed. Yeah. Well, it's on there. Okay. One of them is on there, yeah. The one about mode three knowledge, I kind of, uh, I mean, it's not exactly the same, but I use the same material. Mm, yeah. Fantastic. That's, that's yeah. amazing. Well, is there anything else you would want to plug? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, sorry. Well, I might as well use the opportunity. Um, I'm just looking at the questions you originally asked me what I was going to talk about. Yeah, I think I've talked about everything, really. Anything that we didn't ask you that you would like to mention? <laughs> really? Uh, well, the, just that I hope people, you know, continue to find the concept helpful. But I mean, don't, A, don't take it too literally, as I said before. 
um, but you know you have to add it's just a basic concept and you have to add the clothes as it were you have to dress it up mm -hmm. <laughs> and apply it and um, it, it can only mean something if you explain what it means in certain contexts with certain types of professional so you know the more people do that the more useful I think it will become yeah. to other people um, because you know people can then identify you know mm -hmm. what they see as um, similar or different from their own mm -hmm. situation um, so basically yeah. go play with it <laughs> play with it exactly, exactly. excellent we can do that it's really, it's really nice to meet you and um likewise well, let's keep in touch yeah absolutely thank you oh, great. Pleasure. thank you so much thank you very much Okay. Good to meet you. Good luck with your projects as well. And if you're in London, let me know. We can meet up. Thanks nice very much, Bye-bye.